0: Section twenty-four of Scientific American Supplement, number four hundred forty-six, July nineteenth, eighteen eighty-four. This is a Librox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information on to volunteer, please visit Librox.org. Scientific American Supplement, number four hundred forty-six, July nineteenth, eighteen eighty-four, by various. Section twenty-four: Habits of Burrowing Crayfishes in the United States. From May thirteenth, eighteen eighty-three. I chanced to enter a meadow a few miles above Washington, on the Virginia side of the Potomac, at the head of a small stream emptying into the river. It was between two hills at an elevation of a hundred feet above the Potomac and about a mile from the river. Here I saw many clayey mounds covering burrows scattered over the ground irregularly, both upon the banks of the stream and in the adjacent meadow, even as far as ten yards from the bed of the brook. My curiosity was aroused and I explored several of the holes, finding in each a good-sized crayfish, which Professor Walter Faxon identified as Cambarus Diogenes, Gerard C. Obesus hagen, otherwise known as the burrowing crayfish. I afterward visited the locality several times, collecting specimens of the mounds and crayfishes, which are now in the United States National Museum and making observations. At that time of the year, the stream was receding and the meadow was beginning to dry. At a period not over a month previous, the meadows, at least as far from the stream as the burrows were found, had been covered with water. Those burrows near the stream were less than six inches deep, and there was a gradual increase in depth as the distance from the stream became greater. Moreover, the holes farthest from the stream were in nearly every case covered by a mound, while those nearer had either a very small chimney or none at all, and subsequent visits proved that at that time of the year the mounds were just being constructed. For each time I visited the place, the mounds were more numerous. The length, width, general direction of the burrows and number of the openings were extremely variable, and the same is true of the mounds. Figure 1 illustrates a typical burrow shown in section. Here, the main burrow is very nearly perpendicular, there being but one oblique opening having a very small mound, and the main mound is somewhat wider than long. Occasionally the burrows are very tortuous, and there are often two or three extra openings, even sometimes covered by a mound. There is every conceivable shape and size in the chimneys, ranging from a mere ridge of mud, evidently the first fountain, to those with a breadth one-half the height, a typical mound is one which covers the perpendicular burrow. In figure one, its dimensions being six inches broad and four high. Two other forms are shown in figure two. The burrows near the stream were seldom more than six inches deep, being nearly perpendicular with an enlargement at the base and always with at least one oblique opening. The mounds were usually of yellow clay, although in one place the ground was a fine gravel and there the chimneys were of the same character. They were always circularly pyramidal in shape, the hole inside being very smooth, but the outside was formed of irregular nodules of clay hardened in the sun and lying just as they fell when dropped from the top of the mound. A small quantity of grass and leaves was mixed through the mound, but this was apparently accidental. The size of the burrows varied from half an inch to two inches in diameter, being smooth for the entire distance and nearly uniform in width. While the burrow was far distant from the stream, the upper part was hard and dry. In the deeper holes I invariably found several enlargements at various points in the burrow, some burrows were three feet deep, indeed they all go down to water, and, as the water in the ground lowers, the burrow is undoubtedly projected deeper. The diagonal openings never at that season of the year have perfect chimneys, and seldom more than a mere rim. In no case did I find any connection between two different burrows. In digging after the inhabitants I was seldom able to secure a specimen from the deeper burrows, for I found that the animal always retreated to the extreme end, and when it could go no farther would use its claws in defence. Both males and females have burrows, but they were never found together, each burrow having but a single individual. There is seldom more than a pint of water in each hole, and this is muddy and hardly suitable to sustain life. The neighbouring brooks and springs were inhabited by another species of crayfish, Cambarus bartoni, but although a special search was made for the burrowing species, in no case was a single specimen found outside of the burrows. Sea Bartoni was taken both in the swiftly running portions of the stream and in the shallow side pools, as well as in the springs at the head of small rivers, but would swim about in all directions and was often found under stones in little holes and crevices, none of which appeared to have been made for the purpose of retreat, but were accidental. The crayfish would leave these little retreats whenever disturbed and swim away downstream out of sight. They were often found some distance from the main stream under rocks that had been covered by the brook at a higher watermark, but although there was very little water under the rocks, and the stream had not covered them for at least two weeks, they showed no tendency to burrow, nor have I ever found any burrows formed by the river species Cumberus Athenis, although I have searched over miles of marshland on the Potomac for this purpose. The brook near where my observations were made was fast decreasing in volume, and will probably continue to do so until July its bed would be nearly dry. During the wet seasons the meadow is itself covered, even in the banks of the stream, then underwater, there were holes, but they all extended obliquely without exception, there being no perpendicular burrows and no mounds. The holes extended in about six inches, and there was never a perpendicular branch, nor even an enlargement at the end. It was found the inhabited near the mouth, and by quickly cutting off the rear part of the hole, could force him out. But unless forcibly driven out, it would never leave the hole, not even when a stick was thrust in behind it was undoubtedly the species that Dr. Godman mentioned in his Rambles of a Naturalist, in which Dr. Abbott, Amnal 1873, page 81, refers to C. Bartoni. Although I have no proof that this is so, I am inclined to believe that the burrowing crayfishes retire to the stream in winter and remain there until early spring, when they construct their burrows for the purpose of rearing their young and escaping the summer droughts. My reason for saying this is that I found one burrow which, on my first visit, was but six inches deep and later had been projected to a depth at least twice as great and the inhabitant was an old female. I think that after the winter has passed, and while the marsh is still covered with water, impregnation takes place and burrows are immediately begun. I do not believe that the same burrow is occupied for more than one year, as it would probably fill up during the winter. At first it burrows diagonally, and as long as the mouth is covered with water is satisfied with this oblique hole. When the water recedes, leaving the opening uncovered, burrow will be dug deeper and the economy of a perpendicular burrow must immediately suggest itself. From that time the perpendicular direction is preserved with more or less regularity. Immediately after the perpendicular hole is begun, a shorter opening to the surface is needed for conveying the mud from the nest. And then the perpendicular opening is made. Mud from this, and also from the first part of the perpendicular burrow, is carried out of the diagonal opening and deposited on the edge. If a freshet occurs before this rim of mud has had a chance to harden, it is washed away, and no mound is formed over the oblique burrow. After the vertical opening is made, as the hole is bored deeper, mud is deposited on the edge, and the deeper it is dug, the higher the mound. I do not think that the chimney is a necessary part of the nest, but simply a result of digging. They carried away several mounds, and in a week revisited the place, and no attempt had been made to replace them. But in one case, where I had in addition partly destroyed the burrow by dropping mud into it, there was a simple half-rim of mud around the edge, showing that the crayfish had been at work, and as the mud was dry, the clearing must have been done soon after my departure. That the crayfish retreats as the water in the ground falls lower and lower is proved by the fact that at various intervals there are bottle-shaped cavities marking the end of the burrow at an earlier period. A few of those mounds farthest from the stream had their mouths closed by a pellet of mud. It is said that all are closed during the summer months. How these animals can live for months in the muddy, impure water is to me a puzzle. They are very sluggish, possessing none of the quick motions of their allied C. Bartoni, for when taken out and placed either in water or on the ground, they move very slowly. The path throwing off their claws when their grasp is often exercised. About the middle of May the eggs hatch, and for a time the young cling to the mother, but I am unable to state how long they remain thus. After hatching they must grow rapidly, and soon the burrow will be too small for them to live in, and they must migrate. It would be interesting to know more about the habits of this peculiar species." about which so little has been written. An interesting point to settle would be how and where it gets its food. The burrow contains none, either animal or vegetable. Food must be procured at night, or when the sun is not shining brightly. In the spring and fall the green stalks of meadow grasses would furnish food, but when these become parched and dry they must either dig after and eat the roots, or search in the stream. I feel satisfied that they do not tunnel among the roots, for if they did so these burrows would be frequently met with. Little has as yet been published upon this subject, and that little only covers two spring months, April and May, and it would be interesting if those who have an opportunity to watch the species during other seasons, or who have observed them at any season of the year, would make known their results. Ralph S. Tarr End of section 24, read by Inkerl